We have in our church scientists, pilots, people of business, professors. We have uh, great moms, great career women. And so all of you probably do some things better than than uh, what, you know, and it just comes naturally to you. I, uh, I Occasionally I'm in the kitchen and the women come in to clean it at the church kitchen. And uh, my goodness, they know exactly what they want done and how it's to get done. And, and they just go at it. And I've never met one man yet who volunteered, can I clean the kitchen on a weekly basis? I don't think it's necessarily a gender thing, but you, you got to admit, I, I'm not that guy. Uh, let's talk about something else. I know people who come into a situation and love to solve problems. And some of those people say, give me this problem, I'll solve it on my own. But there are other people who come and say, give me this problem, I'll form a team, and I will lead the team. And we will solve this problem together. They're just not problem solvers. They're leaders of problem solvers. They love to attack with a team. In fact, one of my children once looked at me and said this, Dad, I was not born to take orders. (laughs) And that's, I just want to say this, when you're three, that's hard to take as dad. (laughs) And to this day, I won't mention the gender, but to this day, because I'd give it away, but to this day, that child is giving orders. It's a wonderful thing. Some of you look, lift up the hood of a car, and you actually know what's going on down there. That's an amazing thing that many people don't know. Some of you, when you take a class, and you sign up for a class, within a week... You have mapped out how you're going to finish each paper and how each assignment's going to be done and how much you're going to read each book. I, I, when I take a class, I just pray I'll get through. I start with prayer. Some of you have great people gifts. How do I know? Because people are always around you and they love to spend time with you. One of the things I do that maybe some of you don't do, and, uh, and as soon as I mention this, there's going to be a response. I do theology. And as soon as I say that, and especially as I'm talking to people face-to-face, there are glazed eyes, and a brain fog comes over them. Because as soon as we mention the word theology, what comes across to many people is that's boring, and I don't want to get involved. What does theology have to do with Christianity? I mean, gee whiz. Um, So I do theology. In fact... If you'd ever like to form a study group, I have this 1,300-page systematic theology by Wayne Grudem that I went to seminary with. Um, and, and we could just go page by page and maybe be through by the time I die. <laughs> I love to do this. Not many other people do. I bring this up because I want you to know that some of the things that are easy for me to do... Uh, I enjoy doing, but I often don't find a lot of other people that say it is fun for them or it's very uh, easy for them. And the reason I want to say this is I have some good news and bad news for you in our studies as we go through the book of Ephesians. The first half, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is theology. And you say, well, what's the good news? (laughs) 
No. The first three chapters of six chapters is all about theology, not about how the Christian life, not about ethics, not about anything really, you, you might say, not practical that you're used to. It's all about theology, not about your behavior. So if we're going to take 20 plus weeks, that means for the next 10 weeks, uh, we're going to be involved with theology. And that's the good news. I've cut it down from 30 weeks. We are going to love this. More than that, we're going to grow in our understanding. So when we throw around these five-syllable Latin and Greek words, you'll not just know what it means and comprehend it. But more than that, I pray that you will say, I even know how to express it to people who have no background in this. So in this letter that is written to the growing band of Christians in this city called Ephesus, that is filled with idol worshipers and superstitious people. Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, takes one half of that entire letter and he explains to them how great God is. And he does theology. He does theology. He spends one half of his words talking about who God is and what God has done. And here, when we talk about spiritual transformation... You have to understand that it's just not, you know, I, I, I place my faith in Jesus and suddenly everything changes. My, my, everything about me is different. You have to understand that the transforming that he does comes through an idea, comes through this whole concept of there's truth involved that changes our behavior. There is truth involved that is so true that we become different people through it. So in this first six verses, there are true truths that, that really are involved in transforming our lives. And that's why we're only doing six verses, actually only three or four, to be, to be honest with you. And let me read these first verses because I think they're very important. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1. Transforming words coming right now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the transforming truth. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. As you look carefully at that, you have to understand that it's, that it's really a... Um, uh, to make it more readable, the NIV people changed a few words. Uh, in the original Greek, the thing that Paul was writing, he used the word blessed three times. And what, it is, what the truth is, is that God is our complete sufficiency in the ways that he, uh, he blesses us. Look, we may spend time on improving ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that, our lives and our surroundings. And we can say, honestly, that we maybe, we do a very good job compared to others. And how we improve ourselves. But this is saying that God is involved in already doing and has begun doing things that we could never do for ourselves. What are those three blessings? The first one begins with this. Where it says praise to the God and Father. It means uh, blessed be the Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is inviting us as we open this letter. He's inviting us to join him to be blessing God. To be, uh, 
You might, you might say going into a, a private place in our lives where we realize how great God is. And, 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 and the reason is, is that as he goes on to the second way, the second use of the word blessed, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Notice it says the heavenly realms, not the material world. That doesn't mean we don't experience it in our material world, but we have to understand that he has blessed us in the heavenly realms. That means God gives us things that we never could have found in the material world on its own. And the third blessing is that he gives us all of them when it says in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Uh, as a good parent, some of you probably hold a carrot out to your children I mean, not on a stick, with a, but you know what I mean. In other words, if you do this now, when you're done, this is what you'll get. You dangle the carrot out there. And the child just goes to, you know, whatever you've asked that child to do, now can I get the carrot? Now, now can I have it? This is essentially saying, no, he's given it all to us now. It's all there. You have it. You don't have to get any more of it. It's not a reward for good behavior, but it's a gift. What are they? What are these heavenly and spiritual blessings? What are all of them? I won't go through all of them, but let me just tell you about 43 years ago. I'm a, I, I'm a young seminarian wondering why am I in seminary and, and just sort of feeling out what it means to be in ministry. I had no background at all. So uh, I go into a pre-worship service, a pre-prayer service for worship. There's about 30 or 40 of us there working with youth, and we, we pray before the service. And, and we just pray that that morning would be a wonderful morning for everybody involved, not just us in youth ministry. One of the guys picks up a guitar, and he just begins to play a tune. And the tune uh, is something I've never heard before. It was never published but the tune allows him to use this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 to 31. And he just starts to sing it, and I'm, who does that? He's obviously better than I am at it, certainly at a guitar. But who does this stuff? 42, 43 years later, I read 1 Corinthians, and I sing that song. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom. I won't sing it for you because I hope to audition for the worship team one of these days. And this would put me way down on the fourth level. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I learned to memorize through a song some of these spiritual blessings. And they don't come anywhere else. They don't come through anyone else. And the idea here is he's, Paul is writing to a, a bunch of Christ, uh, Christians in Corinth who think they're the cat's pajamas. They're, they're the best thing that ever came around. He says, no, boast in the Lord and all those spiritual blessings that he has given you in the heavenly realms. In addition, as we go into Ephesians, we'll be looking at wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, uh, this thing called uh, predestination, revelation, and the Holy Spirit. These blessings are in the heavenly realms and cannot be attained through 
earthly resources. They come from God. And some of them are complete. Just, they're, they're totally ours. No work, no further work has to be done. And some of them are in process. Let me explain. In Philippians chapter 1, one of the heavenly blessings is the good work that God is doing in us. And, and until the day of Christ Jesus, he is claiming God is at work in you and he's not stopping. Now you may stop him. You may try to hold him back. But his job and what he is committed to doing is continue to do this good work, either until I'm in heaven and perfected, or Jesus returns for me while I'm still alive and then I'm perfected. That is an ongoing work of the heavenly realm of blessings. But some things are also completely finished. When Jesus is on his cross, and he uses this one great Greek word, this word of commerce, tetelestai, what he's saying is the work that God has intended for Christ to achieve on the cross. Our forgiveness and our redemption, it is now over. God would never have to do anything more for us to be forgiven for eternity. Tetelestai. It doesn't continue. We continue to enjoy the benefits. But God does not have to send his son again to make us forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? We're talking about God's sufficiency here. That's the big word. God's sufficiency, when he provides for us the the uh, the, the heavenly blessings in the spiritual realms that, that we never could have gotten on our own. And you need to know a couple things about this. this you might call this a sidelight, but I think it's very important. When we say sufficiency, it doesn't always mean overabundance. How does God sufficiently provide for us these heavenly spiritual blessings? He provides just enough. That's called sufficient. And he does it just in time. That's also sufficient. He doesn't give you more than enough decades in advance. His delivery system is like automobiles today. You just need enough inventory to get you through. The second thing is that when God gives you these heavenly blessings, he's not tied to one method. Let me just show you this. About 20 years ago, I saw a minister do this. He he had his notes, and he he put them on both sides. See, like this? And and, uh, up to that time, I I had never invented this, but uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the way I used it, I had a notebook, and I just went page by page, by page. And everybody saw me turn the page. When I saw him do this, he turned his page once. I thought, oh, that's cool. (laughs) That is obviously a heavenly blessing. Not really. But I saw him turn the page once, and I started doing that. And for the last 30, 40 years, that's how I've been doing it. You might say, why is that important? I noticed this morning as I was doing my own that I put the, um, what do you call these again? Paper clips. I put the paper clips on the same way and I've been doing it for 30 years. Friends, that's sick. (laughs) God 
told me this morning, find another way. <laughs> Why? Because you, you do things by rote and by memory. You just do it again and again and again. And, and, and you never think of why you're doing it. And by the way, that's the problem that we'll get to in Ephesus. They, they only did their paper clips the same way. 30 years later, they were doing... Imagine it was 30 years later. God doesn't use the same method all the time. What do I mean? How many times when Israel went into the promised land did God use trumpets and shouts to tear down a wall? Just once. How, for, you know, for how many years did the people of God in the wilderness, how many years were they provided manna from heaven? About 40. But when that was over, they had to grow wheat just like we do today. Here's the transforming truth. And friends, I'm trying to put this in a way in which not only do you, uh, do you get it, but you get it in a way in which you could tell it with, uh, tell it to others. When we say that this is a transforming truth, that God is sufficient for us because he offers us these, the blessings in, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, what does it mean that he's sufficient? It means God provides what we could never get on our own. God provides for us what we could never get on our own. As I talk to people who don't have trust in Jesus Christ, you know, and, and there's even some that I love getting with in this community, and they're always talking about religion is for weaklings. And I, and I look at them and say, you, you mean me? You know? And they say, well, no, you're different. I said, no, no, you don't mean that. You, you mean me. And, uh, I've been challenged to articulate to them what it means to have a faith in Jesus Christ and what that word sufficiency, how it translates. So I actually did this. I, I was with one of my neighbors who doesn't believe and he has an old Toyota truck and I, I, I looked at that Toyota truck and I said, why do you drive a Toyota, especially an old truck like that, instead of a Ferrari? And he says, well, I can't afford the Ferrari. You mean it's just money? You cannot afford a Ferrari so you don't go out and buy one? He goes, well, what would it take to have a Ferrari? And he says, I guess I'd have to be earning about $500,000 a year. I said, okay, weakling. (laughs) In other words, for you to have a Ferrari, something would have to happen that you can't do for yourself. That's what a Christian lives by. God provides for us what we could never do on our own. So uh, I remember when I finished that about the Ferrari and, I, and said that, and, and I said, would you like to know what those things are? And he looked at me, his jaw opened, and he had this blank stare, and he said, smile, and said, I'd really like to, Jim, but I'm really busy. So I'm waiting to finish that, or you might say even start that. You see, it's a challenge to do theology. I not only need to comprehend it like you and I all do, but we also need to take it from the textbook, throw out the Latin and Greek words, and learn how to express it for people who do not believe, and and also for us. So there's the first thing. God is sufficient. Of all those great and heavenly blessings, he is the one who gives them to us, and we could get them nowhere else. The second word you see here in verses 4 to 6 And this is going to throw some of you uh, in a tizzy, and I look forward to this. Uh, Beginning at verse 4. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, there it is, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Second one talks about a future, and you might say, well, predestination, that goes way back. Yeah, but it really is looking more about our future. When we were in a certain place, we didn't understand that God had already foreseen a future for us. And this has been debated by Christians over the millenniums. And and it is about the future that God has. And it's a wonderful thought there. The term predestination means that God chooses us. We do not choose him. Wait a minute, you say. I had this marvelous conversion experience. Or I kneel before God and I said, God, I'm, I'm making this choice to follow you the rest of your, of my life. And I don't negate that. That is probably true. I did something very similar. But Romans 3, as, as Paul, the same Paul writes to the Romans, uh, quotes these Old Testament thoughts. And he says this, there's no one who understands God, no one who seeks God. In other words, what he's getting is no such thing as a righteous person. There's no such thing as even a good person. There's no such thing as a spiritually sensitive person. There's no such thing as a person seeking God. Now, you might say as you compare yourself to other people, yes, you are more spiritually sensitive. Yes, you are more moral. Yes, you, you, know, you go to church, they don't, so you must be doing something better than they are. But it's not compared to other people. It's when you compare yourself to God. And compared to God, there is no one righteous unless we are made righteous by God. When compared to God, when I talk about my goodness in my life and my righteousness, I have no defense before him. Now, there have been two great theologians. And some of you, as I've talked to you, come from these different backgrounds. And I'll explain them to you. The one is uh, Arminius who focused on man's free will to choose God. He was a very good man and a great theologian. The other one is John Calvin, who focused on the sovereignty of God. One talks about man making decisions. The other one talks about God, you might say, irresistibly drawing us to himself. And who's right? And as you look at scripture, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are all through it. You see the responsibility of man in, 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 in the Genesis account. Don't do this. I've made a choice to do exactly what you told me not to do. And we've been doing it ever since. And we say, whoopee. That is what we call freedom. In fact, as, as I talk to people, why would you uh, want to focus on choice. And they often say it's because I want to be free versus God being the one who draws me to him. And it, what some people say is it's more like being a puppet. But, but let's look at some of the things that, that God says he has done in advance for us knowing that we're going to pick up. In the second chapter of Ephesians, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance. God knows the good works that we're going to do. That's what it means to be sovereign. He foreknows. And he's already prepared them for us. 
the unlimited, all-powerful God. Bless him because he has great thoughts about you. He has great hopes for you. And he has a great future for you, better than you could ever determine on your own, in this life and in the next. But others say, no, wait a minute. I, I have to make this choice to obey God. Yes, And look, friends, as you go through Scripture, you will see both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And you're asking me in, what, five more minutes to explain it all to you? Not a chance. But if you want to talk down and just sort through these things, I'm going to be available as we do the theology of Ephesians the next ten plus weeks. As we do the theology, I'm open to just sitting down and be, why do I say this? I've been talking to many people from a Catholic background. You can know Christ and be in a Catholic background. That's not the issue. But the issue was in their Catholic background, they spent a lot of time thinking about how bad they were. Catholics, you agree? Okay. In fact, if you couldn't think by yourself about how bad you were, there are people around who would tell you how bad you are. They had people around to to help you in that. And I get this. Let me pick on the other side, okay? Uh, I've been with some really fundamental Baptists. And and I love them. And and they're just as much in Christ as I am. But the focus has always been on how bad a sinner you are. Because if you don't know you're a bad sinner, then you won't turn to Christ. Now... They don't agree just about on anything else, Catholics and fundamental Baptists, except we're really bad. (laughs) And that's what happens, and that's what is preached all the time. If you take a deep look at God, understand that he has worked on the final solution. You may not be able to describe it all right now, but he is planning this life for you, and we should be grateful that he's doing it because he'll do a better job than we will. So those who object to predestination, they say it takes away our freedom. I want freedom of choice. I, I want freedom from control of others and freedom from the necessity of pleasing others. I just haven't found anybody who actually gets to live this way. So when people ask me, what does it mean to say that God has predestined me, as it says right here, can you put that in an easy, transferable form? And the easiest way I can put it is God has a plan. God has a plan for all of his creation, the whole universe, God has a plan for this planet. God has a plan for the human race. And God has a plan for me, for me, for me. And you. He is a planning God. And I discovered that as I'm living in that plan, I couldn't have done a better plan myself. And I couldn't complete it myself. And so God gives me a lot of daily choices. Come on. I got to choose the clothes I wore this morning. He didn't care. But I understand that I will never be happier, never be more joyful, never feel more fulfilled in my life than I have this idea that I'm in God's riverbanks going down the river that he has planned for me. 
And I hope you feel the same. And I want you to know that there'll be seasons when that comes and seasons when that goes. And there's no better example than the Ephesians themselves. Because you see, when we give you those two great truths, God has a plan and, 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 you know, and, and God provides for us what we could never provide for ourselves. We also look at a human tendency. This is a, also a truth that will disappoint us. About 35 years after this, this letter to the Ephesian Christians was written, John the Apostle writes a second letter, and, and it goes to the church in Ephesus and all the surrounding churches. And it points at each thing that's happening in the church. When he gets to Ephesus, again, remember, 30 to 35 years later, he says, you perform good deeds, you endure hardship, you keep good doctrine, you don't allow false teaching. So many things are on the outside looking great. The problem is is that something inside is not doing well. Something inside is really hurting. You have forsaken your first love. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 4 of the Revelation, Yet I hold this against you, Christians in Ephesus, the second or third generation. You have forsaken your first love. You're not loving God like you used to. You're not loving each other like you used to. But you're doing all the same behavior. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees, what would he get after? He go after your outside looks good, but you're a whitewashed sepulcher. You're looking good on the outside, but inside it really stinks. There's death there. You've left something behind. Do you understand that that's a human tendency? If you had a season when you're just red hot for God, everything is new and you just can't do enough, I understand that that season may not last the rest of your life. You may lose interest and you may think you're disappointing God. Or maybe God has disappointed you. And I just want to leave you with this one piece of tough meat to chew on this week. Have you thought through what it means and how to be spiritually transforming? In other words, you're in the process, not for a day or for a season, but for a lifetime. That you develop certain patterns in your life where you understand this is the person that God is, that God could use consistently. And the first part of that pattern, I think, is that I call it the pattern of few. You have fewer thoughts about yourself. I think about myself all the time. I have a song that somebody wrote for me. Oh, gee, I'm wonderful. I think I'm grand. I go to the movie and I hold my hand. (laughs) I think about myself all the time. So do you. You think about it, you know, as you write the checkbook. You think about it as you get in the car. You think about it as you look at the morons driving around you. You think about it all the time. And the idea to be spiritually transformed is you think less about yourself and more about God. Being transformed means you're less fixated on self and more fixated on thoughts about God and about others. And not only that, but you have great thoughts. Get this piece of meat to really chew on it as you you go today. Develop a life pattern of getting great thoughts about God that do not include you. That means learning about God. One of the great books of the last century, and when I say that, it was only 16 years ago, okay? But one of the great books of the last century was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I think I picked it up in the late 70s, uh, and we studied it together even when we were in Australia. 
And uh, we took all the youth group through it. And then I found everywhere I go, I come back to it and read it again and again and again. J.I. Packer is a theologian. But he wrote a book called Knowing God. He didn't say knowing about God. He called it Knowing God. And what he does is he allows us to put a, a focus on God in our lives and, and, and helps us understand it's the most transforming way that we can possibly live to become more like Jesus Christ. And he says this, those who know God have great thoughts about God. Those who know God have great boldness for God. Those who know God have great contentment in God. Those who know God have great energy for God. And he's talking about a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus in this life and less fixated on yourself. What is that? I want you to take this word theology in the next many, many weeks. And I want you to take the word theology, put it on this side, and I want you to be thinking, knowing God. That theology equals knowing God. I'm not talking about just about his attributes, though we, we will have to know that. But theology equals knowing God. The transforming truth is that if you think theology and you think, I can never do that, somebody else does it better, I'll pay them to do it, that's fine. But theology equals knowing God, and you can do it through books. You can do it by hanging around the right people. You can also do it just by living life and watching God at work as he has promised daily, all the time, everywhere you are. Not only are you not forsaken by him, you're not alone. And you will see him coming through. I I hate to say this, but from the next couple of months, you're theologians. But you're theologians and saying, I want to know God. I want to know him. We sing this song in the secret. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. Graham Kendrick uh, wrote this song, Knowing You, Jesus, There Is No Better Way. If you can take the theological concepts and instead say, Here is how my mind and my heart expand because I'm knowing God. Friends, you're going to have a great two months. Let's pray. Take your finger and point it to yourself. And I just want you to think, I want to be a better theologian. Not because I'll do it well. I want to be a better theologian. Theologian. Then cross out theologian and simply say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. And I can promise you that is a prayer God is eager to answer yes. Yes. 
I am working on that because it will transform you. Thank you in Jesus' name. God's people said. Let's stand, shall we?
us this morning and for a long time to come, in case you weren't here last week, are David and Shailene Muir. Um, he takes on the role of executive and worship director. I pray for a long, long time to come. And uh, Shaylee is right by his side, and as you can tell, exceptionally gifted in many, many ways. They have two children. Uh, Eden is the two-year-old girl. Jude is the three, two-month-old boy, okay? And uh, her parents are in the back there. What's your maiden name, Shaylee? Logan. The Logans are back there holding those children, okay? So now, Lord, we go, and we are excited for theology, Because it means we can know you, and we want to know you more. God bless you this day. Amen.